You know, because I'm a person who kind of always interested in words and meaning of words, I've often questioned myself when I hear a word that's used and I keep asking myself, what does that mean? For example, when I call a hospital to check on a patient and they say, well, he's in a stable condition, I kind of scratch my head, well, what does that mean? Because the Oxford Dictionary define stable as firmly fixed, not easily to be moved. And I wonder, I said, is he getting, not getting better or not getting worse? Is that what it means? <laughs> Another definition of the word stable is resolute, not wavering or fickle. And in reality, when it comes to our spiritual lives, being stable should be the goal of every single believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the reason for that is we easily moved. If we allow our emotions to take over, we will be all over the map. But to be spiritually stable means that you are not easily shaken, that you are not easily adrift with the prevailing mood of culture, that you are not easily carried away by the waves of public opinions, that you are not easily swept off your feet with every new fad that comes into town. That's what it means. Spiritual stability is the burden of most, if not all, the writers in the New Testament. It is the burden of their hearts. It's the burden of the Apostle Paul. He literally talks about it in every epistle. It is the burden of Peter and James. And that is why in 1 Thessalonians 3.8, Paul said, For now we really live when we're standing firm in the Lord. In 2 Thessalonians 2.15, he said, So then, brothers, stand firm. James, in chapter 1, verse 8, tells us about the person who's lacking spiritual stability. He said he is double-minded and unstable in all his ways. The apostle Peter tells us in 1 Peter 5.12, This is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. Why? Why should all of these New Testament writers constantly pleading with believers to stand firm and to have spiritual stability? Because they knew, they understood that spiritual instability would lead to spiritual burnout. And spiritual burnout will lead to discouragement, will lead to doubt, and to total ineffectiveness in the ministry of Christ. And that is why I want you to turn with me now to Philippians chapter 4, beginning verse 1 all the way to verse 9, and you'll see here how we can live a stable Christian life. We are toward the end of a series of messages from Philippians, this epistle of joy about the joy of the Lord, and that's why I'm calling this series, It is Contagious, Pass It On. We saw first how you can catch the joy of the Lord. Then we saw how you can keep that joy of the Lord in your life. Then we saw how to exhibit the symptoms of the joy of the Lord. Then we saw how to infect others with the joy of the Lord. Then we saw how to value in your life the joy of the Lord. And then we saw in the last message how to appropriate all of the blessings and all of the advantages of the joy of the Lord. And today I want to tell you about how that joy of the Lord stabilizes your life and mine. 
And the Apostle Paul basically gives us four things. He doesn't spell them out. I'm just summarizing for you. First, in verses 1 to 3 of chapter 4, he said you can achieve that stabilizing power of, of joy from, by standing firm and majoring on the majors. Uh, secondly, in verse 4, he said, by always rejoicing in the Lord. And thirdly, in verse 5, 6, and 7, he said, by praying and not complaining, or instead of complaining. And finally, verses 8 and 9, by filling your mind with godly thoughts. How do you major on the majors? By standing firm, by resolving that you're going to stand firm in the Lord. Now, beloved, this is a command. It is not a suggestion. And the image that you get from this passage is that of a general who has gone into a territory, and he defeated that enemy, and he had taken over that territory. And as he defeats the enemy completely and subdues them and takes over the territory, he turns around and he hands that territory that's already been conquered to the soldiers, to the officers, to his army. And that is why this holding army, when they come and take that territory, they have confidence, not on who they are or what they have done, but they have confidence that their general has already defeated the enemy. All they need to do is to stand firm in the victory of their general. And in our case, the believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we stand firm because Christ has already defeated the enemy. We stand firm because He already conquered death in the grave. We stand firm because He already knocked Satan's teeth out. We stand firm because He has defeated fear and anxiety and doubt. We stand firm because Christ already has taken over all of the territories of sin and guilt and rendered them ineffective. We stand firm because Christ has already obtained a victory for us. We don't have to go and get victory. He already gave it to us. Christ has already destroyed all of the elements that cause us to lose our joy. That's the picture that the Apostle Paul gives us here. You heard of double jeopardy. You know what double jeopardy is? It is you can't be tried for the same crime twice. And Paul is saying, we're not going to be tried twice for our sin and guilt. And that's why the Bible said, therefore, there is no condemnation upon those who are where? In Christ Jesus. We cannot be tried again. Because Christ bore our punishment on the cross. <laughs> because Christ paid our death sentence. Because Christ removed our sin as far from the east to the west. Therefore, we stand on His victory. We stand covered by His righteousness, not ours. We stand firm in His power. We stand firm in His accomplishments, not ours. We stand firm in His glory. We stand firm in Him leading us onward and upward. We stand firm in the path that He already has mapped out for us. And that is why we cannot be judged for sin. Christ paid for it already. And that is why Paul goes on to say to us, to stand firm, and then he immediately go into rebuking two ladies in the church of Philippi. These two ladies, obviously, were doing most of their thinking between their chin and their nose. Have you ever done that? I've done that. <laughs> These two ladies in that church of Philippi, they were fighting over minor issues. 
I promise you, if they were fighting over major doctrinal issues that has to do with the gospel of Christ, that has to do with the biblical truth, Paul would have taken sides, would have said, you're wrong, you're right. But he doesn't. He clearly thinks that these were issues, just simply difference of opinion. They're not important. Beloved, listen to me. Because one of the saddest things in life is when a husband and wife are forever bickering on each other, fighting with each other over silly things, over minor things, over non-important things. But the problem is those little things, unless they're nipped in the bud and taken care of, they're going to grow to be big things. Though some people actually forget what they start fighting for about. One of the saddest things is when two brothers in Christ or two sisters in Christ go into battle with each other. Over what? A difference of opinion. Has nothing to do with the gospel. Has nothing to do with salvation. Has nothing to do with biblical truth. One of the saddest things is when believers get hung up on style rather than substance. And you know what? Satan loves it. He loves it. In a time when we are facing the most horrendous attack by the forces of evil, the last thing we need to do is to get bent out of shape over personalities and feelings. That's what Paul's argument here. And that is why he tells those two precious ladies in the church in Philippi, he says, agree in the Lord. He's saying, don't be divided over opinion, but agree on the Lord. Because that's who we can agree on. Instead of insisting on my way, or I'm right, submit to one another on those issues that are really not important. Submission to spiritual authority is a dirty word in these postmodern times. It really is. And yet the Bible from cover to cover talks about submission to spiritual authority. And that is why Paul tells him actually to submit to his yoke for fellow, the pastor that he set up in the church at Philippi, most likely Epaphroditus, whom he appointed as an overseer, as a spiritual authority in the church. Why? Because the call of the church of Jesus Christ is not to get stuck in the minor issues of life, but it is to minister to one another to restore the falling, to encourage the weak and and the faint-hearted. It is to be about the Father's business, is to go about serving one another instead of insisting on my way. Paul knew that the one thing that would steal the joy of the believer is their stubborn insistence on their opinion. He knew that. Is one thing that will steal your joy as fast as you can count. And when the joy is missing, believers become destabilized. And when you become destabilized, whether in the life of an individual Christian or Christian home or Christian community, when you become destabilized, when destabilization takes place in your life, you open the door wide for Satan to come in and set up his beachhead. Trust me, I know what I'm talking about. We often talk about satanic attack, satanic attack, but you know that most believers actually open the door for Satan to come and attack them by foolishly 
not understanding how to major on the majors and minor on the minors. Because this is going to produce believers who are bitter and vengeful and critical and hostile and unforgiving and proudful. And Paul understood that unless a decisive action is taken quickly, the Philippian church is going to get disintegrated into hostile factions. And that is why twice he says, I urge you, I urge you. He is pleading with them. So what is the answer? Resolve to live in harmony in the Lord. Major on the majors and minor on the minors. The way human nature is that we forget that we stand on Christ's victory. We really do. We become divided instead of seeking peace and reconciliation. We get on the bandwagon to take sides, and thus we get sidetracked from the call of the gospel. Stand firm by majoring on the majors. Secondly, rejoice always in the Lord. This is the whole epistle, is the epistle of joy and rejoicing. He's building up the entire epistle to come to verse 2 of chapter 4 to say, let these two ladies be reconciled. That's the whole purpose of writing the epistle. Some people think that they are rejoicing in the Lord when they are on emotional high. You know, spiritual steroid. You know, they're rejoicing. They really do. So some people think that when you have these ecstatic feelings, you're rejoicing. No, beloved, not at all. At times when I'm rejoicing in the Lord, I'm sitting in silence and tears standing my face. When you're rejoicing in the Lord, sometimes when you become so overwhelmed with gratitude to God that you are speechless, you can't say anything. That you are delighting yourself in the Lord, even when everything is blowing at your face. You are rejoicing in the Lord, even when your circumstances stink. You are rejoicing in the Lord. And we have seen throughout the series of messages the difference between happiness and joy. Happiness is that thing that gets you excited when you get it, and when you don't, you go down in the dumps. But when the Lord is the object of your joy, when He is the object of your rejoicing, you'll be able to rejoice in Him no matter what. You say, well, Michael, how come? How come? Oh, because when all of your sufficiency is in Christ, you're not going to be a gossip. You're not going to be a backbiter. You're not going to be a conceited person. You're not going to be filled with pride. You're not going to be a stingy person with the work of God. You're not going to be bitter in spirit. When the Lord is all your sufficiency, you will always again and again and again and again rejoice. You say, how do I experience the sufficiency of the Lord? There is no other way other than sitting down and spending time with Him. Time to know Him. Time to know His character. Time to know His Word. Time to know His promises. Time to know His desire and His will for you. Joy stabilizes our life when we stand firm and major on the majors. Secondly, when we always rejoice 
in the Lord. Then thirdly, by praying instead of complaining. I want you to look with me, please, verses 5, 6, and 7. Because there's a contrast here. When he said, let your gentleness be evident, he's not saying, let's all become wimps. Or let's all become milk toast. No, 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 no. See, many people confuse gentleness with wimpiness. Now, remember, he is continuing this theme that he's going through. What is that theme? Of bending where it doesn't matter. And that's what gentleness is all about. Don't be inflexible in the matters of opinions. That's what gentleness is all about. Being gracious in the issues that have nothing to do with the gospel. That will ultimately cause you to rejoice. Why? Because you are imitating Christ. You really are. You know, through the years I have seen couples fight over the silliest of things. I really do. I've seen it. I mean, they argue about everything. The important things and unimportant things. I never asked my wife's permission, so I'm going to ask for forgiveness later. But I can tell you, (laughs) in our relationship, I have said to her many times, I don't care if the wall is pink, blue, yellow, green. I don't care if the carpet is black, white. It doesn't matter to me. But when it comes to money, I'm all nose. (laughs) I have a nose for these things, you know. If we can't afford it, we don't buy it. I'm the old-fashioned guy. I'm not going to get credit. If we can't afford it, we're not going to spend the money. We don't need it. Until God provides the money, we'll get it. So instead of stubbornly determining that your opinion is the right one, pray. That's what Paul is saying here. Pray. Call upon the Lord. There is no greater assurance of spiritual stability in your life than being confident that the Lord is near. By the way, he's not talking about the second coming of Christ, meaning his return is near. He is talking about the Lord's nearness with us in every day, every moment, that he's near us. And that's what he's saying. Just remember that. You know why? Because when we can't see the Lord with our physical eyes, we tend to forget that he is right there. He's in the middle of that argument. He's in the middle middle of that debate. He's in the middle of all that. We tend to forget that he's closer to us than our skin Some of you heard me say this before, you know, when the kids were teenagers and and they were dating, and I'm so glad those days are over. (laughs) I pray for you who have kids and shoot. But I I used to say to them and their friends, actually, not just them, but all their friends, I'd say, Now remember, when you're going out on that date, Jesus is sitting between you. (laughs) They used to come back and say to me, Dad, you ruined the date. And I said, Praise God. When we know that the Lord is literally sitting next to you, that He is right here, He's so near, that closer to us than our skin, you and I are not going to be obstinate. We're not going to be obnoxious. We're not going to be anxious. We're not going to be worried. Let gentleness be evident to all. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be known to whom? You know what most Christians do? They reverse the Apostle Paul's formula. They really, really do. Most Christians do. 
I mean, they let everybody else in the world know about their needs <laughs> and not the only one that they should go to. We complain to everyone who would listen instead of going to the only one who can meet our needs. We tell everybody about our victimness instead of going to the only one who can do something about it. Now, let me give you a use of interpretation, not a translation. It's an interpretation, okay? It's kind of put it in, a, in, in every day language. Here's what Paul is saying. Be gracious to people. Oh, but pound as hard as you like on the doors of heaven. As we're saying, now, most people like to be polite toward God, but then they'll tell everybody everything. Now, reverse the formula. He is saying, be stable in your dealing with people, but get out of balance when you're dealing with God. For He is the only one who has the cure for our anxiety. He is the only one who has peace to a distorted spirit. He's the only one who has power to change us and to change others. He's the only one who can transcend and overrule all of the human impossibilities. He's the only one who can supersede all of the human powers, all of the human plans, and all of the human schemes. He's the only one who can open doors that nobody can shut, and he can shut doors that nobody can open. He's the only one who stands guard, puts a garrison around your mind and around your heart, even in the midst of trouble, to give you peace. That's what he's saying. The stabilizing joy comes from standing firm and majoring on the majors. The stabilizing joy comes from always rejoicing in the Lord and Thirdly, the stabilizing joy comes from praying and not complaining. Fourthly, he said the stabilizing joy comes from filling your mind with godly thoughts. Filling your mind with godly thoughts. I'm sure for a patient to be stabilized even, he's got a lot of medication, a lot of nutrition, a lot of stuff that the doctors have to do in order to get him to that stable condition. And the same thing with us. Spiritually. You've heard the computer term that says garbage in, garbage out. That's who we are. What goes inside of us comes out. It says you are what you eat. I can tell you biblical truth. You are what you think. What you think. What fills your mind on a daily basis. Whatever fills your mind is going to come out in your life, is going to come out in your behavior sooner or later. If you're constantly filling your mind with lustful thoughts, your behavior will reflect that in your life. If you fill your mind with angry thoughts, revengeful thoughts, sooner or later, you're going to be an angry person. If you sit in front of the computer and watch all of this pornographic stuff, sooner or later, your behavior reflects the garbage that you're watching. If you read sleazy books all the time and sleazy magazines, expect that that's going to be reflected in your life. If you fill your mind with the feeling of victim mentality, you will live in self-pity. Oh, poor me, poor me, poor me. If you try to count all the great things you did for God and all the favors that you gave God, all the things you did for God, you can count on being an ungrateful person. No gratitude. And that is why verse 8 
Paul said, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if you fill your mind with godly thoughts, with God-honoring thoughts, if you fill your mind with Christ-centered thoughts, if you fill your mind with Christ-likeness, if you say, Lord, I want to fill my mind of how I reflect you in my life, that's exactly what your life is going to reflect. Proverbs 23, 7 says, whatever a man thinks, he is. You're what you think. And so, my beloved friends, it comes as no surprise to any of you that we live in a culture where people no longer ask, what is the truth? What is the truth? So many decades of relativism, and the truth is what you make, the truth is what you believe, the truth is how you feel, have now taken hold. And yet, in reality, for the joy of the Lord to reign supreme in our lives, for stability to fill our lives We need to fill our minds with Christ-centered thoughts. Measure every thought you have with the Word of God. And the God whose character is peace, the God whose property is serenity, the God whose name is Jehovah Shalom, the God whose nature is peaceful, will give you supernatural peace, which will give you strength and will give you tranquility and will give you contentment, even in the toughest of times. And that will produce a stabilizing condition. Father, we just rejoice in your word. We thank you for your word. It is so rich. Each one of those items would have filled uh, an hour by itself. But we thank you for the glimpse that we see. We thank you that you always bring us a word of encouragement, a word of rebuke, a word of exhortation. And Father, you know the heart of every individual here. Nothing is hid from you. And so as we come to you, knowing you're the omnipotent, omniscient God, we confess to you that we got hung up on some silly things and unimportant things. Our homes got messed up and our friendships got messed up because of unimportant things. Father, we pray that you help us and to learn this lesson of majoring on the majors. Help us to stand firm in your victory, Lord, because that's the only victory that we can have. And Father, above all, I pray that for those who are lacking your peace today, whatever the cause of the loss of their joy and peace, I pray in the name of Jesus that you point out to them if they need to do something, if they need to repent, if they need to ask for forgiveness, if they need to do something. And Father, I pray that you restore that peace to them. Thanks for listening to this message from Dr. Michael Youssef, recently featured on Leading the Way. If you'd like to know more about us, please visit ltw.org. That's ltw.org.